series called Some Things Never Change, Timeless Principles for Life Management. And uh, we're talking about uh, money and possessions for a month. As we're going into the holiday season, there's not only Black Friday, now there's Black Thursday. And uh, what do they call it after Black Friday on Monday? Black Monday or something? Cyber Monday. I mean, they're going to have pretty much it's going to be the whole week, then the whole month. And there you go. So we're just uh, helping you as you uh, get ready to go in the new year, not get in extra debt or get in debt altogether. Uh, but, you know, money and how we manage money and possessions really affects the quality of our life. Can I get an amen to that? And uh, if you're married, uh, you know how many fights you may have had or I have had over, you bought what? It was how much? Uh, I like my wife's classic line when she says, I don't remember. I said, how can you not remember? I just don't look at, I didn't look at the receipt. I, you know, anyways, just, you know, everybody's wired differently. But anyway, uh, you know, people have struggled with managing money and their possessions and not being controlled by them since the beginning of mankind. In fact, you think about Cain and Abel. Uh, Cain had some issues with money. That's why he was holding back. And uh, we struggle with it. So this is really important. And what we're doing is what's called the looking at a, a segment from Jesus' teaching in Luke chapter 12, but really we're going back to what's called the wisdom literature. And uh, the wisdom literature is in the Old Testament. It's the Psalms, it's the Proverbs, it's Ecclesiastes. Those are three of the 66 books of the Bible. Three weeks ago, Brian preached out of Ecclesiastes. Last week, I preached out of the Proverbs. And today, I'm going to preach out of the Psalms. And uh, if it's called wisdom literature, uh, this is a good test you about your own wisdom it means that God doesn't want you to be what what's the opposite of being wise a fool you've heard that saying don't act what don't act a fool and so God is trying to give us more wisdom about all kinds of things but specifically we're talking about wisdom as it relates to money and possessions today I'm going to talk about generosity and I want to ask you, uh, how many people here feel financially rich? I didn't say you are or not. How many people feel uh, financially rich? Okay, there's about, this is, you know, some of you are like, this is a trick question. I'm just, how many feel it financially rich? Okay, there's about 11 people in the room. That's probably about accurate. How many people are financially rich? Okay, now we're down to like four. So, Andy, do you know Karina says you guys, are, yeah, there you go. So, and I don't want to be insensitive in any way if you're really struggling financially right now. You're either unemployed, underemployed, or you're bringing in less than you're having to spend in the sense of debt and struggles or medical bills or anything like that. I don't want to be insensitive in any way to your plight. I can tell you for another time, God has some great principles to get even out of the worst situations as it relates to money and debt and all that. I'm not going to talk about that today. But... I do want you to realize that even in our plight, we are a very rich people. I have a sheet here for you. It's a little exercise. It says at the top, I am so rich, how could I not be generous? Proverbs 11, 24 and 25 says, one man gives freely, I think I read this last week, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, which means, that's not a word we use every day, unduly. It means you shouldn't have held back. But it comes to poverty. A generous man or woman will prosper, and he who refreshes others 
will himself be refreshed. So this is a little exercise that a guy put together that I'd like to go through with you. So before I do that, I just want you to ruminate on this. Three billion with a capital B people like you and I with eyes and legs and arms and a nose and relationships and personalities and struggles just like us live on less than two dollars a day. Live on it. So if you're a family of five, I'm a family of five, that means we would live as a family everything on $15, or, or not $15, yeah, $10, excuse me, $10 a day. Think about that. You know, that's, that's not a lot when you consider medical bills, clothing, food, everything else. Three billion out of seven. I was talking to Sean Wooten once, 15 years ago, he's one of the evangelists in the church. He leads a church in Kiev, Ukraine. He said, Marco, if you were born in America or got to come here, you practically won the lottery. Some of you go, well, I'm trying to play the lottery. I haven't won it yet, and I'm in America. No, no. He says, the opportunities that you have here are so much greater than most of the rest of the world. It's like winning the lottery. The LA Times had an article about 15 years ago that when you cross the border, as many of us have, you know what I'm saying, from down south to the U.S., you get about $400,000 in your lifetime of social services. When you add the roads and the hospitals and the water you drink and everything else that somebody pays for, you just get it. And uh, we live in a very, very, very wealthy nation. We're a very wealthy church. Listen to this. So if you want to take the test, here we go. Number one, about how poor you are or how rich you are. This is how most of the world lives. So one billion people out of the seven live this way. Take all the furniture out of your home today except for one table and a couple of chairs. And now take your beds out, that's your beds included, and use a blanket and pad, blankets and pads for beds. I've been to the third world multiple times. Has anybody been to the third world and seen what I'm talking about? Literally, I, was, I took my kid, or my middle child, we went to Honduras, or El Salvador and Guatemala, and we walked into this mud house, and I'm like, look, look, look over here, you know, and it's hard to keep them interested in it, but it was just like some pads on the ground and dirt floor and grease all over the walls from all the cooking and just intense. Number two, take away all your clothing. I know some of you want to do that to buy new stuff. No, that's not what he's saying. Take away all your clothing except your oldest dress or your suit or your shirt or your blouse. So the oldest one you can find and leave only one pair of shoes. Now, I just lost all the women, but just imagine that. Three, empty your pantry and the refrigerator except for this. A small bag of flour, some sugar and salt, a few potatoes, some onions, and a dish of dried beans. That's in your pantry. I was talking to Josue Ortega when I was in El Salvador a couple years ago. He said, Marco, and he's from Mexico, so he's seen a lot of poverty. He goes, it was so interesting. When I came to El Salvador, I kept wondering why are people coming to the store to buy one onion and one potato. Anybody guess why? That's all they could afford that day. And he said they would specifically use coins versus paper bills because it just was harder to spend and it made them be even more frugal with the little that they had. So they'd come and they'd buy one onion, two potatoes, and a quarter pound of rice, and then come back two days later and buy one onion, one potato, and one egg. I mean, you know, just things where you go, because that's all they can do. Three, dismantle your bathroom. He's not talking about remodeling. 
Shut off your running water and remove all the electrical wiring in your house. One billion people live like this. Number five, take the house away. Take away the house itself and move the family into your tool shed in the backyard. Number six, place your house in a shanty town. You know, one of the things I realized, I was somewhere, I can't remember where, and I was in the shanty town, and I, it just hit me. I said, this street, you could pick up and play, you could pick it up from the Philippines, from Africa, from, El, from Central America, from different places. You could just pick up this whole street and lift it up, fly it to another part of the world and set it down, and it's the same power wires running everywhere, the same school uniforms, the same little houses, the same dirt, every, it's just the same, just the people are different sizes, different colors, and you know, it's different language. But it's about exactly the same. Six, seven, cancel all your subscriptions. This is a little bit old, so I know you guys don't know what that is, but we used to order online. Uh, so you could say cancel your online media, and your cell phone, all your newspapers, magazines, book clubs, there's no great loss now because none of you could read of this one billion people anyway. Can you imagine that, not being able to read, what that would do to limit your opportunity? This is very, you know, old. Leave only one radio for the whole shanty town. Now everybody has a cell phone everywhere. Nine, move the nearest hospital or clinic 10 miles away and put a midwife in charge instead of a doctor. 10, throw away your bank books. Stock certificates, pension plans, and insurance policies. Some of you said, I already did. They're not worth anything. Okay, but just imagine. And then leave the family a cash hoard of a whole $10. Can you imagine that, fathers? The insecurity that would feel like if all you had in cash for any need that's going to come up in your family is $10. And then number 11, give the head of the family a few acres to cultivate on which he can raise a few hundred dollars of cash crops. One-third goes to the landlord and one-tenth to the money lenders. Finally, number 12, lop off 25 or more years in your life expectancy because the lack of the kind of food you eat, the kind of air you breathe, the kind of water you drink, and the lack of health care that you never get. Are we rich? Let's just say it together. I'm so rich. Ready? One, two, three. I am so rich. I know some of you said, Mark, you forced me to do that. Let's try it again then. Maybe you can get it from your heart. I am so rich. We are. So how can we not be generous when we're so rich? You know, if Jesus says here in Luke chapter 12, and today's lesson is called what goes around comes around. And it's not that we're generous so that we can have somebody be generous with us. We're generous because that's the heart of God. Right? He gave to us even while we were still sinners. Jesus died for us, the Bible says. We're generous because that's how we want people to be with us. Because that's the right thing. What goes around comes around. Luke 12, 33. We've been looking at Luke 12 the whole time. And then we'll get into Psalm 112. Sell your possessions and give to the poor, Jesus says. Provide purses... For yourselves that will not wear out. Now he's not talking about go buy a nicer purse. He's talking about the things that you hold your money in. It could be a bank account, it could be stock, it could be anything. Provide purses for yourself that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail. Where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
You know, I don't know how you feel about the poor, but I have been tempted at different times to not want to help the poor. About 20 years ago, I was just in the ministry, and I was asked to give follow uh, Ron Drabo back to the airport. He was borrowing someone's car, and I was, Michelle and I, one was going to, you know, take the car and our car back, and then his car after we dropped him off. And as we pulled up right near the airport, there was the guy holding up the sign for money. And the first thought that went through my mind was, what's he doing? What's he going to do with the money? It's a scam. Or something like that. Something judgmental. And then I saw Ron in front of me, who had been in Africa many years, pull his car over to the right, take the time as he's rushing to the airport, take out his wallet, and hand money out. And I felt so guilty. Because here I was judging this guy, and the minister in front of me that I looked up to so much pulls his car over, takes the time, and just second nature gives. There's other times I've been in places and felt superior to poor people. Like, I'm educated, and I'm this, and I'm that, and these poor, poor people. There's other times homeless people have wanted money from me, and I have looked in my pocket, and all I had was a 5 and a 10 and a 20, and I'd only felt comfortable giving a 1 or 2 or a 3, and so I averted eye contact. Now, I know you're, you could be tempted to judge me, but work with me, okay? It's so amazing what we can learn from poor people. If you flip your page over, and this is for you to keep. I wanted you to kind of put this on your refrigerator, your cubicle at work, somewhere up with teens. Put this in your room. You might look at it once. But between now and January 2nd, and just kind of flip it around. Not every day, but maybe you have one side up for a week, and you look at that verse. You'll read a couple of these, and then maybe the next week you turn it over, and you look at that verse. But look at some of the things you can learn from poor people. The poor know they're in urgent need of redemption. Two, the poor know not only their dependence on God and on powerful people, but they know about their interdependence on one another. Three, the poor rest their security not on things. Why? They don't have a lot, but on people. Four, the poor have no exaggerated sense of their own importance. Why? Because no one treats them that way. And no exaggerated need of privacy. Five, the poor expect little from competition and much from cooperation. So they have to get along with others. They rely on others. Six, the poor can distinguish between necessities and luxuries. Classic line with me and my daughters, is it a need or a want? Well, it's a need that I want. No, no. Is it a need or a want? Well, I really want that and I need it too. No, no, come on. Seven, the poor can wait because they've acquired a kind of dogged patience born of acknowledged dependence. Eight, the poor, the fears of the poor. This one's intense. The fears of the poor are more realistic and less exaggerated because they already know that one can survive great suffering and great wants. Number nine, listen to this one close, folks, because we're all really rich. When the poor have the gospel preached to them, it sounds like good news and not like a threat or a scolding or something's going to be taken from them. And number 10, the poor can respond to the call of the gospel with a certain abandonment and uncomplicated totality because they already have so little to lose and they're ready for anything. Can we learn a lot from the poor? They may not have a degree. They may not have finished high school. They may not know how to read, 
but can they teach us a lot about the hearts? I mean, how many of us have been to the third world and visited, and you're with the disciples, and you're like, whew, i got to take a water break or something because I'm not feeling much like a Christian right now. Because the kisses on the cheek, the hugs, the sincerity, the gratitude, the warmth, the sense of the kingdom's amazing. I'll take whatever I can get. I'm so grateful. And you're like, ooh, man. Where's my heart? I think we can learn a lot from the poor. So keep this. Flip it over each week. Do a quiet time on it. Read one of them as you're taking a big bowl of something out of the refrigerator. Feel a little guilty in a good way, not in a bad way. And think on these things. God wants us to be generous. There's a Persian proverb. Remember I said last week there's proverbs in every culture. What I kept, I lost. What I spent, I had. And what I gave, I have. God wants us to be generous. It's not how much I have. It's a mindset. It's an attitude. You know, back uh, in 1849, the gold rush here in California, there's the guy, James Wilson Marshall. He found the first four uh, flecks of gold and then a piece the size of a pea. He was a carpenter from Germany, and he was working at Sutter's Mill here up in Northern California. He actually started the city of Sacramento. And uh, he was just a carpenter doing his business, working in, he was a uh, carpenter in a millwork, and he was working in there building a mill, and the water's coming through, and he looks down, and he sees some flecks, and he stops, and it says, it made my heart thump, for it was certain, I was certain, it was gold. See, gold fever California very quickly became a state. You can guess why. And gold fever brought hundreds of thousands of people to California overnight, practically. People literally went from New York and took a ship all the way around the Cape Horn of Africa. All the way around just to come roll the dice. See if they can strike it big. And I want to tell you the gold fever is an illusion. We're not searching for gold anymore like this. But I think we can get so excited about acquiring wealth and building things. I'm tempted. And it's gold fever, just like then, it was an illusion. Only a few people got financially rich. You know who got the richest? The people that sold the blue jeans, the pans, the picks, and everything else. They got really rich. And everybody else that thought they were going to win. You know the famous saying, fake it till you make it? See, gold leaves you hungover and disappointed. Being generous, it never goes away. It's just you just want more and you just want more. And I'm so thankful for so many in the church that have the generous fever versus the gold fever. You know, Calvin Johnson heard about Hoops for Hope helping our hospital in Cambodia. He didn't start the program. Heard about it. But you know Calvin. Anything Calvin does, it just goes big. You'd want to, if Calvin was an investor, you'd want him to be your guy. He's got the Midas touch when it comes to generosity. And he found out about it, and he had no shame to his game. He's begging doctors. He's looking him in the eye. Hey, this goes to Cambodia. Come on. You're from the third. You make a lot. I mean, he's just no shame. And not like one time, but tens of thousands and tens of thousands and tens of thousands of dollars. And then getting other people to do it. He caught the generous fever. Elaine, same thing. You know, found out about Wilmington Middle School. 
got the backpack drive going year after year after year after year. The Christmas party going year after year after year. The Thanksgiving best going year after year. Do you know that you may forget about all those things? Those kids will never forget. You know, I'm so grateful for Davida Johnson, one of the singles who, who went down uh, on one of our brigades and got the generous fever, wants to go again. So thankful for Martin and April who went on one of the brigades and then on their, on their own dime, then they went to the Philippines and created their own brigades. And you say, well, they're all rich. That's why they're doing it. No, they sacrificed hundreds and thousands of their own dollars and time. So grateful for Tess, Diane, and Anna, all dentists. Sacrificed. They went on a brigade. Were worried they're going to lose business in their dental practices. Had to pay their employees even when they weren't there. And God gave them, blessed their generous fever, where now they've created their own brigades and are going to the Philippines for two weeks. Appreciate Clay Jackson with the blood drive. The Stebergs and all the work they've done for community service and helping the poor. The Atkins and all that they did in, in Nevada and now for us. The Pusacheris and so many others. These are just the leaders, but they caught the generous fever. And we need to foster that generous fever and not the gold fever. Psalm chapter 1, verse 12, Psalm 112. This is so powerful. We're going to look at this psalm here. And picture a rich man in your mind. Someone that drives a really nice car. Sometimes I'll see a car and I'll go, girl, see that car over there? $350,000. It's like driving a house. At least this, or a back house in L.A. See that car over there? $450,000. And they're like, what? Really, Dad? I don't know. It's just somehow. And, um, but you think of a rich person, how they dress, where they eat, how they look the way they command attention, how they speak, how people respond to them, the, the influence they have. Look at the, what the Bible says a rich person's like, someone that's generous. Psalm 112 says, praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who finds great delight in his commands. His children will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house. And his righteousness endures forever. Even in darkness, light dawns for the upright, for the gracious and compassionate and righteous man. Good will come to him who is generous and lends freely, who conducts his affairs with justice. Surely he will never be shaken. A righteous man will be remembered forever. He'll have no fear of bad news. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is secure. He will have no fear. And in the end, he will look with triumph on his foes. He has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn, which is another, it's a biblical word for strength. His horn will be lifted high in honor. Look at this last line. For someone that doesn't follow God, who's not generous the way God wants, envies this person. The wicked man will see and be vexed. That means frustrated, deeply frustrated. He'll gnash his teeth and waste away. The longings of the wicked will come to nothing. What an interesting ending to that psalm. What a great picture about being a generous person. You know, I want you to just take this point away today, what it says here in Psalm 112. Good will come to him who is generous and lends freely. Good will come 
What goes around comes back fully around. Good will come to him who is generous and lend freely. We don't have to grab it. We don't have to demand it. We don't have to ask, where's my good? I've been doing good. Where is it? it the Bible promises us it will come when we're generous and we lend freely. You know, there's a story about a roofer back in 2006 named Charles Moore. And Charles was in Toledo, Ohio, and he lost his job as a roofer. And he decided after not finding work, having no family, no relatives, nowhere else to go, I'm going to move back to my hometown, to Detroit, to look for work there. And as he got back to Detroit, the economy was terrible, as many of us know what's happened to Detroit. And he tried to find work, tried to find work, tried to find work, couldn't find work, even in his hometown, with people he knew, something he was familiar with, unemployed. No one to rely on. And before you know it, he was homeless. And one day he was so desperate, true story, he just says, I've got to find some money to get food. And so he starts going through trash bins looking for bottles so they can exchange them and then piece together the pennies and dollars to have some money. And as he's looking through the trash bin, he found 31 U.S. savings bonds. And so instead of just going and cashing them in, he goes to this group called the Neighborhood Service Organization, a nonprofit, and he tracked down the owners of the bonds. He says, I can't keep these. These belong to someone. And so he takes the bonds. Their face value is $8,900. Their current value, because they were from the 1980s, was $21,000. And he turns them in. And he goes to find the owner, and the owner was dead. And so they went to the owner's son and, and, the, and the owner's uh, wife. And so he got excited thinking, hey, I did the right thing. It's going to come around. Well, he got $100. And um, thought, well, it's better than nothing, more than I would have found in the bottles. Well, some, and he was thankful for the money, but somehow someone told the local media, and Neil Leto, the guy who gave him the money, began receiving phone calls and emails from angry people, calling him cheap and ungrateful. Leto was a lawyer. I'll just keep moving on. Blamed his 82-year-old mother, saying that was a lot of money for her back in her day. And uh, everyone just kept complaining, and it got on the news. And, and he said, now the community started to know, and people started to support him. One guy sent him eight trash bags with bottle returns, another a bowl of coins. A local billiards offer offered him a night on the town with food, drinks, and unlimited pool. That was helpful. And as the story began to grow, people started expressing just verbal gratitude for this homeless man's integrity. Two businessmen pulled together a gift of $1,200, and they also paid for $250 for him to get new clothing at the men's warehouse. They even lined him up with a job interview at a local cleaning company. And they said this, here is a man, quote, who by all rights should be worried and thinking about himself but who takes the time to think about others. Wolski said, what a lesson. Isn't that what we're all supposed to be doing? Right? I thought, what a great story about God blessing integrity and just who we should be, not because of the reward that's going to come our way. And good will come to him who is generous and lends freely. I really want you to think about being generous with three areas. Your money, your possessions, and this one that you can't re-earn, you can't replace, your time. 
your money, your possessions, your time. Let's look at a few parts here in Psalm 112. Psalm 112, verse 3, it says, Wealth and riches are in the generous person's house. And if you look through that whole psalm, there's one word that keeps being repeated over and a theme over and over again, and it's righteousness. God values righteousness. Generosity is an act of righteousness. Generosity is in the very nature of God when you look at how God describes himself. Slow to anger. What's the next line? Rich in compassion. What's the next line? Abounding, full of, just giving it away in love. Wealth and riches are in this person's house. And his righteousness endures forever. Even in darkness, light dawns for the upright, for the gracious and compassionate and righteous man. Think about that door that's on the screen. What's coming out of your house? Besides your little screaming children or something. What's coming out of your house? I mean, what a picture that God promises that when we're generous, what comes out of our home is powerful. There's a light. There's a wealth. There's an abundance. There's a riches. That's not gold fever. It's generous fever. It's not something you can just go buy at Target or on Amazon or you can go earn it. It's not something you can get through going through a series of classes and getting a certificate or degree. It's not something you get at your job. It's supernatural. It's spiritual. It's from the Lord. This wealth and riches he's talking about is way beyond monetary. It's a state of heart. It's a state of being. It's spiritual. And I love what the Bible says is there's such an overwhelming strength on the inside that even in darkness, even in things that are hard and tough, light swallows them up. For that type of person. That's who God wants us to be. Second thing he says, good will come to him who is generous, who lends freely, and who conducts his affairs with justice. What's justice? Doing the right thing. There's that word again, righteousness. How are you conducting your affairs? Surely this person, this is the result of a generous person. He will never be shaken. A righteous man He'll be remembered forever. You know, I've been to many cemeteries. I've done a lot of funerals. And as I went to do the, the second part of the funeral or visiting it, where you go from the funeral parlor out to the grave site, and you step over like 75, 30, 200 grave sites, and you start looking at the dates and the names, and you go, wow, man, this person went on picnics and had a family, and nobody remembers it. Their grandkids are gone. Their great-grandkids are gone. It's, there's a marker here, but who's, nobody knows Joe McGillicuddy. Who the heck is he? So how can a righteous man be remembered forever? Well, God remembers. There's an eternal life. And as we make a spiritual impact, we're generous with our heart. As we make a spiritual impact with our money and possessions and our time, that spiritual impact perpetuates itself. Just like if your father was an alcoholic or your mother, that perpetuates on the opposite side, when there's something good, it perpetuates. And that righteous person lives way beyond their name. Their influence is forever. It says, he will have no fear of bad news. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is secure. He will have no fear. And in the end, the generous person will look in triumph on their foes. 
No, they're not going to win every deal. They're not going to have a good year every year. They're not going to get their way in every part of life. Things aren't going to work out perfectly in their marriage, family, life. It doesn't for anybody. But in the end, and what's most important, triumph. Because they're with God. And they're generous. Thirdly, Psalm 112, verse 9 and 10, it says he scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. Why did Jesus say it's so important for us to give to the poor? Because they can't give back. What you get, it's intangible. You can't demand it. You can't expect it. It's just something that comes. Goodwill will come to him who is generous and lends freely. It says this person, his righteousness endures forever. His horn, his strength will be lifted high in honor. And I love this last sentence, this last statement in Psalm 112. I think it's verse 10 or 11. Someone that's wicked, that doesn't have God in control of their life, that doesn't have this type of generosity, they're grabbing, they're land grabbing, they're position grabbing, they're grabbing at their job, they're grabbing and they're, they're, they're posing, they're posturing, they're grabbing, they're trying to get theirs, their way. And they're still left like all those people with the gold fever going, I spent money, I went into debt to get to California. I'm now in more debt than I've ever, I'm going to have to be an indentured servant now. I've got nothing. I went 12,000 miles to get here. I thought it was going to turn out different. Gold fever always ends that way. Generous fever, it comes back over and over over again. And I think what the Bible's telling us right here in the wisdom literature is the wicked person looks over at the generous person and at first might say, that's stupid. I give the United Way. That's carried away. You don't need to spend that much time or money or possessions on people. Just give your two cents, literally, figuratively, whatever. And they look at it and they can maybe look down on it initially. But then as time goes on and they look at the dividend chart and they look at the returns, they go, what is it? How come he has what I don't have? How come she has what I don't have? How come this isn't playing out for me? I've done it the right way. I've done it my way. And they're vexed. They're frustrated. They're angry. Where do you see that word gnash? When the Bible's describing people in hell. God, don't, don't, don't. You know, just, just full of regret, full of frustration. Full of, this isn't how it's supposed to be. And they're looking over at the righteous person, the generous person. And they're going, what happened to me? It says there right at the end, the longings of the wicked will come to nothing. There's a proverb that says, when a wicked man dies, his hope perishes. All he expected from his power comes to nothing. See, what we're talking about here is more than just generous fever on Martin Luther King Day or generous fever at, on the International Day of Giving, which was last week, where we all gave a dollar a week, $52 to help the poor. This is, a, this is a mindset. This is a state of being. This is a posture of the human race that some take, but very, very few. This is way beyond just giving two bucks to the homeless guy. And not that we shouldn't do all those things with joy and faith, but this is a mindset. 
that God wants us to have. You know, I'm going to close with this story here, and then I'm going to give you some practicals that I made up. You can come up with your own list. Here we go. Uh, never heard of this guy before. Anybody ever heard of Tom White? Tom White was one of the early fathers of philanthropy here in our country before it was Vogue. He was a Boston businessman, World War II paratrooper. Grew up in a very horrible family situation. He says, when I think back to my father, he was drunk all the time and angry. And so he came back from World War II as a paratrooper, had medals and this and that, and he took the family company and he turned it around and built it into a over $100 million company, one of the most successful building companies in the city of Boston. I think it's still there today. Built all kinds of major projects. But the thing about Tom was, Tom just died in 2011 at 90 years old, but at 86, he had achieved his life goal. And his life goal was to give away his entire fortune to the needs of the poor. And the East Coast is close to Haiti. Haiti's the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere. Just like a short plane right away, a short boat right away, is some of the greatest wealth amassed next to like some of the greatest poverty ever. And Tom was so moved that he wanted to give away all of his wealth. Not at once. And when asked, Tom, how much have you given away? At 86, it was 75 million. And he, he said, you know, I don't know because I've been doing this my whole life. I, even when I didn't have any savings, I would always give 1,000 here and 100 here. And it's just kind of how I've been. I just thought it was the right thing to do. So I don't know what the total is, but I know this. I want to give it all away. And so Tom started this organization uh, in Haiti helping overcome drug-resistant tuberculosis, AIDS, and other major poverty called Partners in Health. And he partnered with Harvard, Harvard and one of the main doctors there, Dr. Paul Farmer, took over it, took over, uh, you know, founded the program. And Tom even said, you know, I used to hang around a lot of rich people. I can't handle it anymore. This is what he said, quote, unquote, in the Boston Globe. They're all about me, me, me. I don't want to be around them. I want to give my money away. I want to ask Tom, how can you do this? Why should you? He goes, give me three reasons I shouldn't. And I'll give you three reasons I should. I can't take it with me, one. My kids are okay, two, and my wife's taken care of. And he said this quote, I'm motivated a lot by what Jesus wants me to do, or what I think he wants me to do. And I think he wants me to help make the world a better place. Dr. Tom Farmer, who started the program there in Haiti, said this. Tom? I don't get it. He's basically given away all his wealth. I've never seen it before, Dr. Farmer said. Have you? I've read about it in the Bible, he said, but that's about it. I've never seen it. You know, it's before Tom died at 86, he said this. There he is as an elderly man. I'm sorry. My only regret in life is I didn't have more money to give away. Here's some practicals I made up. You can make your own up. One, spend a time listening to someone and actually care, not just pretend. Two, give a lot of hugs. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't give financially. I'm a hugger. I'm not a giver financially. That's, I'm just a hugger. What are you doing? Just be generous. It's who I am. It's how I roll. Come on, who wants one? You can get a shirt, hug me. Three, buy less for Christmas and give it to the poor. And serve on Thanksgiving or Christmas Day. I'm not saying you have to do any of these things. I just said, okay, Marco, if I was to be generous or call the church to be generous, what would I do? I took my kids on Christmas Day. They fought me, all three of them, like I was Attila the Hun. 
on Christmas Day. What do you mean one gift? We have to wait? <gasps> they complained the entire way there. They were dragging their feet at the beginning of it. And then on the way home, they're like, this was the best thing ever. Why do kids do that? They're like, this was the best. We should do this every My best part of Christmas was this right now. But they fought me the whole way. We want to make it a family tradition. Four, take an interest in the little people. That's not just short people like me, okay? That's people you think are better, that you're better than. It's the person in the parking booth that's making $8 an hour and sitting there at 2 in the morning. You know what I'm saying? Doing their homework or watching a staticky TV. Take an interest in the little people. People that we typically look through along life's way. Five, genuine, give genuine compliments a lot and be specific. Not just, hey, you're a great person and I like your glasses. Hey, can I tell you something I appreciate about you? Three times over the last month, you've encouraged me right when I needed it most. And it's not just what you did, it's how you said it. I really felt loved. I want to learn from you, and it really ministered to me. Boy, that didn't take a lot of work. Six, go way out of your way for others often. Aren't you moved when someone goes out of their way for you? Seven, spend your Saturday serving the poor regularly. It doesn't have to be every Saturday, but as a habit. Don't just tell your kids to be like Jesus. Don't just tell them they should be giving and generous. Show them and show God. Number eight, take time to help people spiritually often. Remember, time is very valuable. Number nine, buy less, give more. Number 10, give more than a tithe if you're truly able. Number 11, sponsor someone for something you wish someone had sponsored for you when you were a college student. When you had 32 bucks, when your paycheck was 68.54 after taxes, and you're like, what? It's supposed to be 120. And your electric bill's 40, and now you're left with 23. And you're like, well, thank God for the 99 cent menu. Sponsor somebody. Number 12, be gracious, forgive easily, freely, and often. Number 13, practice hospitality. Have strangers in your home as a habit. I don't just mean, hey, you over there, you look shady. Come into my house. That's not what I'm talking about. Hey, you over there, I, I don't even know. I'm saying practice hospitality. People that aren't your close family and friends that you've met along life's way that you feel good about, have them in your home, have them at your table, feed them a meal and show love and share the gospel. Number 14, give someone outside your family something small or big that you know they'll love. And number 15, develop the generosity habit like we just talked about. Thank you. I hope this was helpful to you today.